From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. Francis is out today. I'm your host, Marjorie Sensor. The Defense Department has five new principles to help it use artificial intelligence ethically. Defense Secretary Mark Esper directed the Pentagon to adopt principles recommended by the Defense Innovation Board. C4ISRNet reports the principles call for military use of AI to be responsible, equitable, traceable, reliable, and governable. The Pentagon wants to create a request for prototype proposals for 5G technology. Close to 300 companies participated in a virtual industry day on the Defense Department's upcoming experiments. Breaking Defense reports selected companies will perform 5G experiments at four bases across the country. A new policy could allow the Defense Secretary to avoid collectively bargaining with Pentagon employees. A memo issued by the Trump administration says DOD needs, quote, maximum flexibility to carry out its mission. FCW reports the policy would invalidate union agreements for DOD civilians. The National Defense Industrial Association gives the defense industrial base a C grade and a new assessment. The report says cybersecurity and workforce pose key challenges. Wes Hallman is Senior Vice President of Strategy and Policy at the National Defense Industrial Association. Thanks for being here, Wes. Thank you. I appreciate the time. Let's talk a little bit about how you put together the report. Um, how did you kind of conduct the analysis and, and figure out how to evaluate this? That's great. Well, I don't want to bore everybody with, with uh, you know, some of the, uh, the research methods, et cetera. But the bottom line, this is a data-driven report. It's a composite score. And so the way you would look at the report is the overall score would be like a GPA. The, we have eight condition areas that, that we looked at where we had data sets that, that, that go back far enough for us to analyze. And you can think of those as courses. And then inside that are different measures. And you can think of those as your tests or papers or whatever. And so all of that, each one of those, those inputs is, is graded with a, with a zero to 100 score. And then those are a composite for each of the categories or the condition areas and then an overall score. So that's kind of how we did it. And the way we looked at this where we wanted a baseline is the last time the United States had to essentially recapitalize all our services with an eye towards a great power competitor. And this would be the, the uh, Reagan-Carter buildup of 1977 to 1986. Where we could do that, we use that as the baseline for 100. And where we couldn't do that, we would baseline where the data gave us. We would assess what that baseline looked like and then score 0 to 100 from there. So that's how we did it. And again, it's all data driven. So the C grade is the, is the overall score. What were the areas um, that were the weakest that you saw? So uh, key weak points, and, and this is going to come as no surprise, uh, and, and I know we've talked about it on this uh, program and others, that industrial security is, is a key concern area. Now, this is a concern area of not just industry, but obviously the Pentagon itself. Uh, they've put a lot of effort into their uh, CMMC uh, system, the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certifications. We think this is a vital thing to do. Uh, and that they've been very good about being open about how they're implementing that. But the bottom line is that's a concern because it's such a dynamic threat. Every time you come with a counter, there are three or four different tools that an adversary is going to be using to try to get into that uh, breakthrough on the industrial security side. So that's a concern. That had actually the lowest score of any down in the 30s. Uh, another key uh, component is inputs, and one of the key inputs is workforce. 
And as you know, workforce is something that you can't just throw money at. It's not going to be there tomorrow unless you make some very long-term investments, whether that's K through 16 education or, or apprenticeships, et cetera. Making those investments, those pay off. One of the things that's interesting of the report, uh, and as you read it, is you got to understand that this is this is a report of what's where we are now. So it's really a lagging indicator of things that have been happening in the past and, and are coming to fruition now. Well, uh, on the other kind of side of the coin, what were the the strong points? What were areas where you feel like industry is doing what they need to be doing? Uh, I think that's uh, a great question. One of them is is the demand signal. So. The, the budget increases over the last few years have shown up in, in significant demand, uh, but also, and importantly, is overseas sales. Uh, we still have the best industri defense industrial base in the world that are producing the best equipment, and you see that in the demand signal for our systems uh, overseas. So we see that as, as a very strong uh, point. Uh, other things that are strong is uh, that uh, just the attention that's being paid to to this uh, when the report came out that it's being referenced it's being talked about and we see that as as valuable because again because this is a lagging indicator when you want to make some changes that that increase the health and readiness of this industrial base you really have to look at what kind of investments that you need to make over time did you make recommendations in the report? No, we specifically didn't make recommendations because we want this to be reference material. So what we did is we, we looked at data, we made conclusions off the data, and we've left it for, for others or ourselves to go back and look at and come out with recommendations later on. But we see this report as providing uh, a, to fill a gap that, that wasn't there, to, to have some kind of way to look at the defense industrial base in an unclassified manner that was done every year with the same sort of measures so you could look at it, see trend analysis, see what's working and what's not. And we felt that if we included conclusions, it, it would be seen more as an advocacy tool than it was really a reference material. I know the Trump administration uh, oversaw its own kind of industrial base assessment. Did yours align with that? I know it's been some time, so I wonder if you've seen improvements or declines since then. So you're referencing the Executive Order 13806 report, and the, the answer is yeah, theirs was uh, a much longer time frame that they worked on this, a lot deeper in several areas. They, they had a matrix model, and the fact is that most of it is unclassified. So uh, we know uh, from reporting and from talking to folks in the Pentagon that they're getting after some of the indi indicators that came out of that. I would say that ours doesn't necessarily align perfectly because we don't have the same sort of measures and we don't have this access to the same sort of data, but they do, uh, they do rhyme. So, so it is indicating some of the same uh, conditions, same concerns, and I think uh, what they're going to get after internally that they've already done are going to show up in our report in, in, in those indicators as we look toward their future. With just about a minute to go, uh, I know NDI is hoping to make this an annual assessment. Um, what do you think it will do to kind of give it a, a regularity? So uh, one is we, we've made a commitment as an industry association that to, to, to fill this gap. Uh, so we, we have support from, from our leadership to do this on an annual basis. What we're doing now, and, and if you, uh, when you read it, you'll see we've, we've said that this is our first, this is essentially a beta. We want inputs on how to make this model better. Uh, but uh, we've already had a few meetings. Some folks have given us a call, come in and met in our offices, say, hey, in this area, we think you should look at this, this, and this. There are some data sets that are out there that we didn't know that we had access to. So 
really we see this as as increasingly uh, rich report going forward as we incorporate all those great suggestions that have been made to us over time. Thank you so much, Wes Hallman. Thank you. Up next, the Army has big plans for modernization in fiscal year 2021. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what's getting more money and what's getting cut? You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. As the Army asks for $2 billion more in FY21 for its modernization priorities, Army leaders say they've had to make trade-offs to fund those programs. I sat down with Susanna Bloom from the Center for a New American Security after she moderated a special fireside chat with Army Secretary Ryan McCarthy and Chief of Staff General McConville. I think that they're thinking hard about modernization and the work that remains to be done in that space. Uh, I think one critical takeaway uh, is what Secretary McCarthy previewed a little bit at the tail end of our conversation about how um, you know there are a lot of different new systems in prototype phase right now. Uh, if they all perform, they'll they'll be a crisis of its own in uh, how to find the resources to bring those systems into production. Uh, and so definitely something to watch for in kind of the 22-23 budget cycles. That prototyping piece seems like a really significant part of their budget and their plans for the future. Um, what do you think that means for the Army? How significant is that as a, as a change? Uh, you know, I think the Army took a lot of lessons out of their experience with future combat system and, and some of the notable failures that occurred um, in that approach. And I think a lot of what they've done in standing up Futures Command and creating these cross-functional teams that include both acquisition folks, programmers, as well as operators, um, you know, they've sought to address a lot of the failures of the problems that, that plagued future combat system. But the fact remains that the Army is making some very big bets you know, they're trying to modernize all their major systems simultaneously again, um, which is a hard thing, both from a kind of acquisition bandwidth perspective as well as from a dollars and cents perspective. And so uh, they certainly have their work cut out for them. The uh, OMFV, the optionally manned fighting vehicle, seems to be the first test case of, of how they're approaching prototyping. What can we learn from the way that's gone so far? Yeah, well, OMFV certainly had a bit of a stumble out of the gate. Um, but I think that the way that uh, General McConville kind of painted the picture was um, one of a learning process, right? And in, in that the, with the Army, the direction that the Army has tried to go as a result of that early failure uh, is to have a much more iterative process with industry, a much closer dialogue as they're developing requirements, um, both to figure out what is within the range of the possible in terms of technology that already exists, what can be developed, what can uh, incrementally improve uh, to, to kind of put into this new system. Um, and so I think that's a great lesson to have learned. Um, I hope they apply it across the board. I think that kind of uh, ability to tap into the engineering talent that exists in defense industry and really let it run and show you uh, as the service what is, what is within the realm of the possible is a, is a great practice. Do you think seeing what happened there maybe makes it less likely that we get to that crisis where all of these prototypes are successful, or you think they really should be preparing for that situation? Um, I, I think they need to be prepared, and by prepared, I mean I think that they need to have thought very carefully about what the prioritization is within the big six priorities, right? It may, um, you know, I, I think Secretary McCarthy was pretty candid in saying that um, they're going to look at 
uh, reducing and cutting back legacy systems in order to afford the modernization portfolio, but I also see a future where they're going to have to make some trade-offs within the modernization portfolio as well. I think the Army would say they also already have made some trade-offs, mm -hmm. right? There's been some cuts just, mm -hmm. to, just to set these priorities to get them on the right path. Um, did they make the right choices? What do you think of kind of the trade-offs they've made thus far? Um, did they make the right choices? Hard to say. Um, you know, I think that they're, I, you, you saw I pushed both the secretary and the chief a little bit today on autonomous systems um, and uh, heavier investment in artificial intelligence and machine learning capability. Um, I, you know, agree with my old bo boss, Bob Work. I think he was right when he said that if in the future the first soldier through the door is a human, we've made a mistake. Um, and so, you know, I think the fact that, um, you know, IVAS, the, the kind of night vision goggle 2.0, which actually has a much bigger capability than just night vision, is a great example of reaching out to a commercial technology that existed and figuring out how to adapt that to a defense ecosystem. And I think it is also a big leap ahead in terms of capability. Um, you know, the, uh, there are other areas where, um, where you know, there are kind of some questions about whether we're really doing something meaningfully new and different or um, whether it's sort of like a more incremental progress. And uh, with just about a minute to go, they will be taking their pitch to Congress soon. Uh, what kind of feedback do you think Congress is going to give to the, the budget they put forth? Well, I think the approach that the Secretary and the Chief have taken in going together um, is a really strong approach. It, I think it has a really big impact when it's clear that the Army leadership is in lockstep in terms of what their priorities for, in terms of what they're asking Congress for. Um, and so that, I think, will set them up for success. Um, I think that if they you know, largely survived last cycle intact, they'll probably make it through this one pretty successfully as well. Um, but again, back to what Secretary McCarthy said, that I think the real challenge is coming in 22 and 23. Up next, Navy ships or a border wall, the biggest potential disagreements in the fiscal year 21 budget proposal. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the defense budget, and what to watch. Don't forget, if you missed an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. The proposed Pentagon budget is already running into criticism on Capitol Hill. Some lawmakers are concerned about planned cuts to shipbuilding, while others are worried about aircraft retirements. Roxana Tyrone and Travis Tritton are defense reporters at Bloomberg Government. Thanks for being here. Roxana, let's start by talking about um, the, the shipbuilding proposal. What are the sticking points here? What are lawmakers saying? So lawmakers uh, really did not receive the proposal very well because it, it doesn't request as many ships as they expected. It, it requests about eight ships, out of which uh, only six are combat uh, ships. And so lawmakers expected at least 10 um, ships, uh, funding for at least 10 ships to be requested. The other major issue there is the fact that um, lawmakers have fought really hard to get the production schedule for the Virginia class submarine to two submarines a year. And they funded, uh, they, they made sure that the funding is there and the Pentagon only decided to fund one Virginia class submarine. Um, Therefore, um, you're going to have uh, lawmakers from Connecticut, from Rhode Island, um, uh, basically all the major uh, shipbuilding supporters uh, up in arms over this because uh, they definitely wanted to see two uh, submarines funded a year. 
this is this is not the first time that we've seen some back and forth. Last year, there was a lot of concern over the initial proposal related yes. to shipbuilding. Um, how do you think this is going to play out? It sounds like you think Congress may kind of try to, to exert their their will here again. I think they I think they will because one of the things is that the shipbuilding uh, has bipartisan support. Um, although there is a tiny wrinkle there. Uh, the chairman of the Armed Services Committee, uh, Jim Inhofe, uh, told a group of reporters that uh, basically he doesn't necessarily think that the Navy needs the 355 ship Navy, that it's just a number. Uh, what he wants to see is more capability, more ability of the ships to, to, you know, to, to fight um, you know, uh, the future wars. Uh, so, so, but I think overall you will see uh, a, a lot of movement from both uh, Democrats and Republicans to uh, restore some funding, uh, particularly for the Virginia-class submarine. Not sure exactly how they're going to be able to find all the funding to uh, basically uh, maybe fund 10 ships or more. Travis, another sticking point in the budget is the border wall funding. What's happening there? What kind of feedback are you seeing? Right. For the second year in the row, uh, the White House, President Trump, has decided that they're going to tap into the military's existing funding to pay for this wall. Um, last year, it caused a lot of consternation on the Hill, uh, a lot of upset feelings. And we're seeing a replay of that this year. I think one of the main differences this year is last year, um, a lot of this money came from the military construction budget. So you're talking about facilities for military families. And this year, you're seeing them pull money from, from weapons programs. Um, so uh, if last year hurt, I think this year hurts probably pinches even more. And, um, and so we're going to have to see how, how Congress uh, deals with this and, and what they might do, what some of the remedies uh, they might seek, whether they might try to shift some of uh, the military's ability to re reprogram funds. Does, does taking it from procurement as opposed to military housing sort of shift the constituency on Capitol Hill that's concerned about it? It does, yeah. I mean, uh, obviously, um, the, the defense industry um, uh, is a big constituency. Um, they have a lot of support on Capitol Hill. Um, but I think it's too early to, to see how this trade-off is going to um, shake out. Um, you know, for example, you have somebody like uh, Representative Kay Granger, who has uh, the F-35 in her district and uh, the V-22 Osprey in a neighbor neighboring district next door. Um, she is kind of walking that tightrope between supporting the president and his border wall and while also supporting, you know, one of the major industries in her district. And so far, I mean, she's been uh, coming out very strongly in support of the border wall construction. Um, but we're going to have to see other uh, lawmakers may see that balance in a different way and come out on a different side of it. Um. I think you're going to see legislative efforts um, to try and restrict the reprogramming authority that the Pentagon has. I think that they um, they managed to ruffle a lot of feathers because they they asked for the um, they they sent a reprogramming request after they actually shifted the funds. And so even though lawmakers are now rejecting that uh, request, it doesn't. It's actually a symbolic move. But I think it it it, it bodes uh, it doesn't bode really well for the future. So I think you're going to see at least in the Democratic-led House an effort to uh, try and restrict that reprogramming authority. Um, and there you also have uh, Representative Mac Thornberry, who is retiring and who has come very strongly, has come out very strongly against the reprogramming request. Uh, and Travis, the another uh, area I want to focus on for a moment is, is space. I know there's a lot of attention this, in this budget um, on that kind of new focus area. What does mm -hmm. the FY21 budget mean for space and, spa and the space sport force specifically? Yeah, space is very big, and, and this uh, uh, budget would be a pivot point for it. Um, you know, the space force was just created in December, and what we see in this budget is um, it growing from 
a $40 million startup budget to uh, over $15 billion annual budget. Um, a lot of those units are coming out of existing units uh, in the Air Force, but still it's a massive amount of growth. You're also seeing the personnel uh, dramatically increase um, right now that's staffed by um, airmen who are part of the Air Force, but they're looking to have their own indigenous personnel uh, as well as civilians, and that would be about 10,000 personnel. So these are big increases. Congress is going to have to decide how comfortable they are with, um, with that growth. I, I think there's a lot of support for space on the Hill, so it won't be shocking, but at the same time, I think lawmakers are going to want to see the details, for example, how many civilian personnel you have versus how many active duty troops in that new service. And Roxanne, with just about a minute to go, what do you think the timeline is for, for this back and forth to play out? What should we expect you know, this month and, and next? I think you're going to have a lot of hearings on the budget, on various services. Obviously, uh, Secretary of Defense Esper is, uh, you know, testified today. Um, but you're going to see all the hearings, and then the House Armed Services Committee is going to mark up the bill on um, April uh, 29th, um, and uh, the Senate will follow, um, you know, will follow suit pretty quickly in May. Uh, so you're gonna you're gonna see how this is playing out pretty soon. I think in a couple of months, and the goal is for them to go to conference uh, this summer. So they're trying to get the bill out uh, very fast. It's an election year, so that might be a little bit harder to do uh, with all the um, competing interests. Uh, but e at least uh, the committees themselves and the the, the Senate and the House uh, might actually have uh, approved the bills by then. Thank you so much. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now stay on top of all things that matter to the business of government anywhere, anytime. Subscribe to the Government Matters podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Marjorie Sensor.